Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. We are live. Yay. So, Debbie Bebo, welcome to MBN. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes. So, um, before I forget, and I sometimes forget, my name is Mel Rosenberg, and I am the host of the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. And I have a wonderful, very, very special guest here, whom I've been waiting to interview for months and months. Uh, And it's Debbie, Debbie Bebo. And welcome to the interview program. Thank you. Thank you, Mel. And usually my guests are in America and they get up at seven in the morning or six in the morning. And you are in Milano. Where it's the afternoon. Where Where it's it's almost almost Tel Aviv time. Right, right. What time is it in Tel Aviv? It's a, we're five o'clock and you're four o'clock. Okay, okay, so just an hour. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, I don't know where to start. So why don't you start by just saying a few words about your wonderful agency, which mm-hmm. has the eponymous name of the Debbie Bebo Agency. Great, I will. So, um, so my agency, I founded it in 2011. So it's now been 12 years. Um, yeah, going on 12 years this year. Um um, how can I explain it in a very, very kind of succinctly? I would say our agency um, is a little bit different from other um, literary agencies in that we're specialized in picture books. So, um, no, not YA or not uh, picture books. So for, for me, it's really important, the relationship the text and illustration. So we are a picture book agency. I think that's what distinguishes us maybe from other agencies. That said, we represent both authors, writers, as well as illustrators. The um, I would say most of our artists are illustrators, probably 80%. Smaller percent are writers, authors. Um, and that's because of the way when we initially got started, I was focused on um, packaging and, illust- and illustrations. But anyway, um, and um, I'm very much interested in um, in crossing borders. And so maybe because I myself have crossed borders, um, maybe because I'm interested in different aesthetics and di- ways of uh, mm-hmm. how, seeing how illustrators and how writers approach uh, the uh, children's books. But we represent um, artists from around the world. And so from, of course, English speaking countries, uh, of Italy, of course, since we're based in Italy, um, France, Germany, Israel, um, as well as South America, Brazil, um, Taiwan, Japan, etc. So, um, so language, I mean, not that language isn't an issue, of course, the language we speak to with our, um, with our artists is English, because that's really important. And I'll, and I'll put that out there just because it came direct right now, the importance of having a common language. And I say that because we have represented artists in the past who's who don't speak English very well and it's very challenging 
I'll just put, I'll just say that it's very challenging. It's easy to get lost in translation when you're speaking the same language, <laughs> um, and uh, you know misunderstandings happen all the time when we're both speaking the same language. When two people from two different countries and two different cultures can't speak a common language, it makes it much more difficult. And it sounds it sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but I'm not, because um, just because of the fact that I've had issues with you know, issues with things that are very, very banal and very um, like practical things where there's been huge misunderstandings because of Google Translate. I kid you not, I kid you not. So having said that, something that, um, something that I, I often, I, I'm invited to teach seminars at um, schools, illustration schools, and something, one of the first things I, I often say is if you don't speak a second language, be it English or French or a language that um, I highly recommend studying it because I think it's very important uh, that one, you can speak to your, um, to your editor, to your agent, or to whoever that person might be in that foreign language, which is usually English, not always, not always. So that's very interesting because, you know, um, authors are taught to try and understand, I wouldn't say the language, the language in a high metaphoric sense of the illustrator. And this is very interesting. You're saying, okay, the, the illustrators also have to understand at a high level of syntax the English text of the of the picture book. Very much so. I, I do. I mean, I have had there have been situations where a publisher will actually translate the text from, let's say, French into English for the um, for the artist for the illustrator. Well, if the if the illustrator's first language isn't English. They have to know English quite well to understand the nuances, to really understand, to break down that text, to understand it as if it were their own language. And sometimes I've had I've had um, artists who then translate it them, have it translated into their language. So that's fu that's fundamental, and it's something that almost seems secondary. It seems like oh, everybody everybody speaks English. It's you know that's not true. But th the point is not speaking English or not, but is being able to communicate in that language at a high level. Be it be it understanding maybe your spoken English isn't great, but your comprehension is good. And maybe you don't speak it, you know, brilliantly, but you can write emails. I think that's quite that that's quite important. Um, and I, I also represent um, Italian artists who's uh, and I and I um, really kind of push them because since I can translate for them. Um, but I really think it's important for them to learn English as well. I mean, of course, and I feel like they do know the English, but maybe they're a bit mm -hmm. reticent and they know that I can speak for them, but it's important. I, I agree with you. I tell my students uh, who like to speak in Hebrew, and I say, you know, Hebrew is a wonderful language. It's an ancient language. It's 3,500 years old. It's been resurrected. That's fine. But until the rest of the world speaks Hebrew as the lingua franca, we have to learn to speak in English. Right, right. And so, yeah, so that's just something important for your for your uh, listeners, viewers mm -hmm. who aren't native, uh, you know, mother tongue English. And let me just say one more thing. I think they also have a one up. They have a one up because they speak another language. So they can also they have metaphors that are different, visual metaphors that are different. I, I, I think that's a plus that that English is not the first language or the second or third or fourth language. Um, I'll just give you another example. I was just. Um, before before this interview, I was uh, reviewing um, uh, a storyboard by an, a Russian uh, artist we represent, 
she's a, an author and an illustrator and who actually now lives in, in Israel um, due to the war actually. And I was reviewing her text and she actually, um, she translates her text herself into English. So I don't know what the original Russian is. So it's hard for me to, to evaluate. What I do know is that she's able to convey herself very well in English. And, um, but what I find interesting when I, um, when I review, kind of edit these texts, is that there's something different about the text, and I like that difference. Like maybe a native speaker wouldn't write it in that word, or, or in this, that wouldn't use the same words or the same tone. And I find that very interesting and exciting. Uh, I I agree with you. I have a book coming out in Israel this summer. Even though I've been here 50 years, and I think my Hebrew is terrific, still I had to get my Hebrew translated back into English and then back into Hebrew. Um, so, the, you know, the syntax at the end of the day, if you're, if you're not a native speaker in the language of the book, you have to find somebody who is. Right. Uh, and, and well, that's also interesting because I've also had, uh, this has happened recently in more than one situation where I've had Italian authors, artists write directly in English. And then, and then we edit it in English and then it gets published first in English and then we sell the rights to an Italian publication and the Italian feels funky. It feels a little bit different because they, because they wrote it in English. So that's also interesting. Absolutely. I mean, you're used to hearing it in one language. Well, we have too much in common because you're also an expat. Right. Um, you grew up in the States. Let, let's go back to Debbie, uh, your early life in California. Started at the very beginning. I was born. You don't have to say when. Uh, thank you. I was born in Los Angeles, um, and uh, we moved to Northern California when I was about two. So I grew up in the Bay Area um, in Northern California, and um, basically raised in the Silicon Valley um, in Cupertino, to be to be precise. So uh, of course, it's a completely different place today. Uh, but interestingly enough, even as a child, I kind of imagined myself, um, I kind of launched myself as elsewhere. I just didn't think that Cupertino was my home for some reason. Not that I felt like a fish out of water because um, I didn't feel like a fish out of water. I just felt like that wasn't my home. So, um, and I couldn't put my finger on it. Didn't know why. Maybe because my mom herself was, my mom herself left Japan at a very young age on her own in the 50s, um, which was very kind of bold. That's extraordinary. A few words about your mom. Yeah, my mom was yeah an extraordinary woman. She left Japan kind of like what I was saying about myself. Maybe she didn't feel completely, not Japanese, I think she felt Japanese, but there were things about the Japanese culture that she wasn't completely um, crazy about and in sync with. And she had this kind of... Uh, had a free spirit, a uh, very independent, strong woman for a Japanese woman at the time. And so she decided that she wanted to leave. And so she had to save up money. And at the time you couldn't, you know, you had to have, um, what's it, what was it called? Um, I, I can't think of the name of it right now, but she needed to have a name of somebody in the state. Uh, a sponsor. Thank you. She had to have a sponsor. She had to have a sponsor. So she, her older sister who was 20 years older than her. Um, who lived in Washington DC because she had lived with, a, with a, um, a diplomat, she married a diplomat. She was a sponsor, but it was actually, she could go there if she would take care of their kids. Um, and so she did that. She took, actually, she took a merchant ship because her father knew somebody. And it's incredible that her parents even let her go. Went on a merchant ship. So the only woman, not even on a, on a passenger ship, 
she lands uh, after a few weeks on the ship in Port of Los Angeles, which it sounds like at the time probably still is like a scary place. And she got there and she said, what am I doing here? Why did I come here? Uh, long story short, she, she ended up going to DC and babysitting her nephews and nieces, didn't like it. And she said, I'm out of here and went to Berkeley where there was another sponsor because there's always like this Japanese connection. And there was a, a woman who, you know, um, rented out uh, rooms to Japanese students. And, and my parents met there. My, my dad went to UC Berkeley. He grew up in Berkeley and they met, they met in, um, in Berkeley. So, so maybe- One second, how, how did they, Debbie, how did they meet? We have lots of time. And if we don't finish today, we'll have another interview. Oh, that's, oh, that's interesting. They actually met um, at, um, as the family legend says, my mom worked at the cinema as like the ticket lady at the, in the ticket booth. In it. And I think my dad went by and noticed her. And my mom was in an international um, kind of students association. I think my dad was really interested in international students. So th these kind of things that, that both my parents have, I think, kind of they passed on to me as well. So they were both into the international students that had lots of international friends. They met at the movie theater. I love the movies. Um, and that's that's actually how they met. Okay. And, and, you... and let me say, at the time, so we're talking the late 1950s, my mom, Japanese woman, my father, uh, Jew, American Jew, basically, they they eloped because neither family, yeah, neither family accepted the other. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So wow. at the time, yeah, at the time, you know, there was a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment, especially in California. Also at the time, um, the the Japanese family couldn't believe that my mom would marry not not only a non-Japanese person but a, a Jewish American who is this guy, and the same the same uh, for my uh, my father's family. They couldn't imagine him marrying a, a, a Japanese woman. Um, and interestingly enough, I have correspondence between my father and my Japanese grandfather, who I never met because he died before I was born. Correspondence in beautiful English that he wrote, um, where he, he they slowly came to accept him. Wow. And, by, and vice versa. That, that's my, in, it's incredible. Is, is, that, is that written up? Is there a book on, on that? And there should be. No, there's not a book on that, but there is something about my about the Bebos and the um, the the Bebo side of my family is also a very interesting um, story as well. Um, and I'll just make it really short. But my great great great, let's say grandfather um, Solomon Bebo um, came over from Prussia in the 1860s, 18, 1870s, and um, a lot of the men at the time would bring over their wives. Or their future wives. Well, the Bebos, when they they got to when they got to New York, they split, and the the kind of intellectual Bebos remained in New York and became the Bibos, and then the the rugged the rugged ones, which were my my folk, uh, the Bebos went out west, and Solomon Bebo they started trading with the with the Native Americans, and my and Solomon Bebo actually became they he married locally, married a Hopi uh, Native American woman, and um, learned the languages of the different tribes and became an activist for the Native Americans and actually became the, probably the first and only, I think, uh, I should document this, um, Jewish, um, Native, J Jewish Hopi, Jewish Hopi chief. Because he really, I mean, they not only traded with them, but they, they you know, the trading store, but they actually um, 
he was an activist for for their rights, for the Native American rights. So I think that's yeah. There's there's at least one book there. I'm 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 surprised at you. Um, <laughs> incredible. So like in, in a couple of sentences, what was your home like when you were like five six years old? Was your mom fluent in English? Uh, uh, did you oh, celebrate yeah, Jewish yeah. holidays? Um, uh, oh, oh, both, both. Help both, me. Both are interesting. So my parents divorced when I was young. And so mm -hmm. I had two very distinct lives. One, the Japanese side, which would be all of my, um, my aunts and uncles, uh, my mom's side moved to the States after years and years. They, they all kind of, and my mom had, had, had a big family. So I would spend a lot of time with the Japanese side, my, my grandmother and my abasan and my aunts and uncles for holidays, and then would spend um, maybe the same holiday at my grandparents' house with my father uh, and celebrating, I, I wouldn't say that they were observing Jews, but you know, not celebrating Hanukkah, but they didn't celebrate Christmas. I mean, they didn't have a Christmas tree. So we actually grew up kind of non-denominational because of, we, we had kind of these both sides. My mom's family is Buddhist, because the Jewish, so they kind of let us choose for ourselves. But yeah, I had a very, I had a very, um, I guess, interesting, just because very bi, bi-cultural, um, uh, I would say, uh, childhood. It was raised knowing, knowing, feeling these very strong roots on both sides, very strong and very um, different. Um, and I felt them both strongly, and I felt that that they were that I was both of these worlds. Incredible. But the, yeah, but at the same time, I have to say, and 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 it, it was interesting growing up in Cupertino at the time. Cupertino has become a very very Asian uh, city. At the time, it wasn't, and there were very few. Uh, my three best friends, we were all. Uh, I, I think looking back on it, it's quite interesting. My best friend Chinazo, who's still one of my, my best friends, she um, half Nigerian, half Croatian. Um, my other friend Maureen was half Samoan, half Irish. And my other friend Sylvia was half German, half uh, African American, and so I just think it's interesting that I happen to to gravitate toward, or we happen to gravitate toward each other, because it was actually quite white at the time. Now it's completely changed, um, but I think I did grow up knowing that I was, you know, biracial, was di different than than most of. The, my friends when I was five. In fact, when I was five or six years old, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes. And my middle name is Miyoko. And people say, what does the M stand for? And I used to say Michelle, because I was so, I really wanted to, I didn't want to be um, perceived as um, different, which I think is something that children have. Another and even book, adults too. Another book right there, even though they are similar in the genre. Right. But, uh, and um, so um, that's incredible. How old were you when your parents separated? I was young, like three years old. Okay, so you know my you know my theory. What? I don't. People, I don't know. <laughs> okay, Pe people who who deal in picture books mm -hmm. are five year olds. People who oh you oh like are five like people who write books or people who work with children's books have have yeah. a very strong five year old self in them, um, and. Um, how connected are you to the five-year-old Debbie Bebo? Oh no, that that's an interesting. No, that's interesting. I don't know. I, I don't know how connected I am. Sometimes I feel like I'm in constant dialogue with that. I don't know. Say five-year-old, but with that um, 
that child. I, I, I tend to remember her really well. The five-year-old, the three-year-old, I remember well. The five-year-old, the eight-year-old. I have, I feel like I'm, I, I have a, a really um, active oneric life and I, I dream a lot and I'm able to kind of tap into to those dreams. And, and yeah, I, I hadn't, I've never thought about that theory of, of people who work with children's books are basically five-year-olds, but it's, it's interesting because what I, um, yeah, I could, find, you could be a six-year-old, but in that yeah, no, no, but, neighborhood. No, what, I, what I find, um, is that people who, um, are very, uh, I don't want to say successful people who are able to tell stories, tell children's stories, either, uh, writing it, illustrating it or both, I think are very much in touch because they're able to access that part and they're able to empathize with that that child and they're I think also able to remember the who they were at that age and they weren't um, at least this is what I remember for myself I remember feeling very much older than I was you know thinking like these people are, are talking to me as if I were you know some young dumb kid and actually they have no idea right uh, all the things that I'm thinking or I don't know I, re I remember having that thought um Vividly, which which brings me to to something that happened yesterday. Since it's fresh in my mind, I went to um, a museum here in Milan um, called Pinacoteca um, di Brera, and um, a book a local bookstore here um, who that I often work with and we're really good friends. They did this very kind of interesting interactive um, event with the, the museum, where children were not only children, anybody uh, basically is open to anyone. They set up a, a house, like a wooden little house, filled with picture books, illustrated books, uh, illustrated books, about 150 illustrated books. Yeah, the director of the museum is very, really kind of visionary. Thought of this idea. I, and I have to go. No, yeah, actually, no, it's, it's fascinating. But basically, so when, so when you, is it open? It's so this is like every the third the third Sunday of every month. Brera. Oh. Let me tell you. Let me tell you the thing which is interesting, because. I was struck by it and I was struck by watching this little kid do it. Basically, they, the, the, the activity is this. You look at the, they chose, they selected this uh, painting by Bellini in the museum and they noticed three different characters in the um, painting. They, and they, the question is, what, like, uh, there's a giraffe, there's a, a man looking out and there's a, a veiled woman. So the question is, where is the giraffe going? What is the man looking at, and what is under the, the the veil? And they invite you to find the answers via in these illustrated books, right? And so, for me, I know I was super excited, and I started looking in the books, and I was kind of very literal, like trying to find the answer. Like, I wonder what the answer is. I wonder where the giraffe is going. Um, and what I saw watching these children was number one, it's obviously a way to put the the painting in relationship with, with the visual art in, in children's books. But I also found it was a different way of reading a children's book, of reading a picture book, right? It was a different approach completely. And there's so many different approaches. And this is something why I love and why I, I have gravitated toward and why it's become my, my, not only my passion, but my life, my life's work, is that children's books offer something, I believe. Um, and I don't, it's not even a different genre. It's something uh, in and of itself that other books don't, 
The other books don't. Um, and it's, it, it is the interdependence between text and illustrations. Um, now doing this exercise is obviously something completely different and it's a different way, but it's still, you can use picture books in so many different ways. I have friends who use picture books with, uh, you know, psychologists who use picture books with their patients or um, speech therapists who use picture books with that, with their um, um, patients as well. So there's different. I feel like the, the use is so much greater. Of course, these books are are, are primarily for children, but the uses are, are um, I think, much deeper. And, and not only much, not much deeper, but much um, the scope. There's a greater scope for the actual um, use of picture books. Oh, and so hold on, I told you all this, why? Because of the child, that little, he was more like an eight-year-old. But I saw this child, the, the, the things that he, his answers, the book that he found was not like a, a picture book for toddlers or the, the choice was quite great, the selection. And it was a photographic book, like an encyclopedic photographic book who you would think would be much more for adults. And he was so... Um, he, he was just very concentrated. And the fact that he went to one book and found all three answers in one book um, just made me think of often we project onto kids something that really they are, that we don't know that they aren't. Like this kid was basically thinking, or not thinking, he was reacting, you know, um, as kids do in the most open way possible in the most open way possible in his way. I just thought it was radical that he chose one book instead of three, I don't know, like thinking out of the box and, and, and going toward a book that one wouldn't expect for children. So I think that's really surprising as well. You know, we say, know your audience when you write, know your audience when you illustrate, do we really know our audience? I don't know. And so maybe going back to your question, um, I guess all we can know is, is, is that child in ourselves. I mean, that's a great, that's a great starting point. And then also being around other children as well, I think is, uh, helps a lot too. And I, I don't know of a genre that has more audiences because right, you, have right. to, you have to write to the, to the kid inside you and then to the kid everywhere else and the parents and grandparents and librarians and school children and your agent and the editors and the publishers and probably I've forgotten a few. Right, no, it's true. And, and, the, adults who, and, and the adults who love children's books, or like you say, the parents, who then might be reading at a different level as well. It, it, I, I look at children's books, um, and that's part of the reason that I, I write and I interview, as almost holy. Like for me, this is like a, um, something very sacred to be able to touch a child at the formative age of three, four, five, six years old and have a book that, I mean, the books that I grew up with as a five-year-old have imprinted me my whole life. Uh, do you remember any books from when you were four or five? You know, I don't. Um, and, and in all honesty, what I remember is I remember my mom didn't read books to us. I started, I think I started reading at a young age because I remember in kindergarten I could read. That, that I remember I could read. And what I remember is, uh, oh, and you had asked about, yeah, my mom, you know, she did, of course, speak English fluently, but um, she didn't read to us, but we went to the library. We went to the library, the public library, and that was one of my favorite places, I have to say. And I think she would drop us off at the library. <laughs> and I think at th that time, like, you know, we were on our own, like, for the day at the library. And that was kind of my, my, um, my paradise. Um, but what I do remember is being read to by my teachers. 
And I remember um, I have a, a very vivid memory of being read to either in kindergarten or the first grade. And we would sit in a circle like on the ground around the teacher. And I remember when she read having like um, a, a tingling feeling on my shoulder, like feeling really kind of warm and tingly. And I think that is, is the feeling um, that has always stayed with me. Not so much, uh, and I've, I, I remember reading books when I was a bit older, not picture books though. I remember reading books, um, narrative books. But I think that feeling of that feeling of being read to and of feeling very special and of imagining these things together. I think that collective experience, but also feeling like she was reading to me was quite, um, was very strong. And when she was reading to the circle, you could see the illustrations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She would read to us and then she, you know, show us the, the, because, the illustrations. And that's something I ended up doing right before the pandemic. The year before the pandemic, I started um, having these story times at this uh, local bookstore. And that was that was an incredible experience for me, reading, because I read to my my son, of course, when he was a child, but now he's, he's 21. Um, and so I don't have that audience anymore. And having... Um, having reading again to children and just seeing the joy, the pure joy. And, and also, it also made, made a bit more concrete. Like, I feel like what I do as an agent is quite abstract in the sense I work with artists, I work with illustrators, we work on projects together, we sell the rights, we see the book published, we promote it. But, you know, who's actually, I mean, we read it, we love the books, but we don't know how the books are going to go over. Um, and so actually I would read books that, uh, you know, classics as well as books that, that I represent. And it was, it was really exciting to see how kids reacted to certain stories. And you know, right away, if a child is interested, if they're not interested, they'll just walk with these kids like two years old, they'll crawl or walk away. If they're not interested, there's no keeping them there. And so to see, to kind of watch them choose certain books, because at that age, even at two, they know they're, what they like, and what they don't like and what holds their attention and what doesn't. And that doesn't make it a, a bad book. It just means it's that child, it's not for that child. And if it happens enough, maybe there is something, maybe there is something to reconsider about the book. Well, one of the things that you've written about is uh, how you select stories and illustrators uh, based on one word, which you call vision. Um, mm -hmm. We'll get back to that, but now it's clear to me based on the story you told of sitting in the circle and feeling this tingling, maybe, you're looking for that same tingling when you look at artwork or a text. That's, not, but that's, uh, that's an interesting connection. Maybe it is. What I know what I do have, what I get almost instinctively, and sometimes people ask, you know, how do you choose, how, how do you select? It is, for me, it's instinctive. It's instinctive. And if I don't feel, some, sometimes I even get the opposite, the opposite feeling, which is I get a bad feeling, or like sometimes I see something that I just don't like, and it almost physically affects me. I feel physically Ill, ill. It's terrible to say, but it's true. So, so in the same vein, when something strikes me, when there's something, uh, I've just fallen in love with it. I want, I, I want to know more. I want to, um, yeah, it, it's like falling in love. And it's like having that feeling, that feeling that um, purely, it, for me, it's purely um, instinctive. And so, um, and sometimes that instinct doesn't turn into, doesn't translate into commercial success, right? Who knows? I mean, no. because you you said it, Debbie. Um, it's impossible to predict what the reader response is going to be at the end of the day, 
And if you could do that, then all books would sell out and all books would have multiple uh, printings and, and be widely successful. Right, right. So all I can do as an agent is, um, is uh, absolutely support and back the stuff, the, the work that I love. And, and, and that's what I say also to artists who, um, to, who submit their work to us. Um, if I don't connect, and also I don't work alone. I also, uh, my associate uh, is Ilari Demonti. We work very closely together. We, you know, we read things separately, like submissions, she'll read, I'll read, and then we, we uh, talk about, we discuss it together. And sometimes she might say something like, oh, that's a good point, or vice versa. But um, what I try to do is if I love something, I, I think I can sell it. I'm pretty sure if I love something, I'm pretty sure I can sell if it's at a good point. And if it's not at a good point, we could work on it to get it at a good point. Um, but I think my job is to select stuff, to select work that I love and I that I feel should be on the market and could be on the market and that I feel I can place in the market. And I feel mm -hmm. that it is valid. So if I don't feel like a work is valid or it should be on the market or could be on the market or it has problems, it's very difficult for me to convince other people. And I'll tell you why. And this is something that I tell my artists, but I tell also people who, who submit their work to me, even if I like their work, if I feel like there's something that's not working in it, and the artist doesn't agree, it's very difficult for, for me then to, to, um, to find a publisher because, and this happens, this has happened time and time again, is when I start pitching the book to publishers and they start um, or, or making critiques or bringing up the weak points, if, if what they're saying coincides with what I said to the artist, then what do you do? It's like, oh, I, I can't defend it. I say, oh, I, I totally agree. I can't defend it. And so if I, if a publisher says to me, listen, this, I just feel like the voice is weak, or I don't know that what may put in those terms, but I feel like this has been seen before, the end is not working. And I said that exact same thing to the artist. Well, at that point, I can either go back and tell the artist again, but I already told that to the artist. So do you see what I'm saying? It's very, um, I think what I'm trying to say is that um, it's important that I believe well, that the artist believes in the work, but, but for me to represent that I totally believe in it and that the relationship that I have with um, the artists you represent is one um, in which there is um, mutual understanding and openness. Because if an artist isn't willing to, uh, isn't willing to change things and, and I'm the first step, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the first filter, right? I mean, it's the agent who, uh, then the next step is then the publisher and then the publisher will want to edit it. So if somebody comes on board and is very kind of adamant and says, no, I, this is my vision for the book and it doesn't, you know, and I, I'm not quite sure about it, then I'd rather just let it go and say, you know what, th th that's great. And and I hope you find a publisher because there are times where where they do also, that's, you know, that's wonderful. I'm just not the right agent for that for that artist. Okay, but when writers or illustrators get um, get feedback like that, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I hope you give them a day or two to uh, to cool off. <laughs> yeah, because no, we, it, we we tend to bristle and say, "Oh, yeah. don't you get it? Don't you get it? Don't you get I, it?" And then it takes a day or two. You have to give them the day or two cooling off, right? I realize I should have I should have studied psychology. I should have. <laughs> I, I should. I should probably still take some lessons in psychology because it's true. It's you know I think we're all very sensitive people. I think we're all sensitive. Uh, 
artist, particularly sensitive, I, I consider myself a sensitive person, but, um, and I realize when anybody gives a critique or something that you've maybe uh, spent a long time working on, it's very difficult to, to accept and to hear and to hear. And so, yes, no, no, I think also, um, it's also like a dance. And I think, you know, uh, I, I know the people I work with and I know maybe the right approach or how to approach or how not to approach it. And there's been times where it, it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't always work. Okay, but, but, but as a writer, it's the most important thing because when you get feedback from editors, uh, even if they tell you things that are dreadful, <laughs> like the the ending is not the ending. Uh, right, you know, right. The ending is bad. Yeah, right, it's a yeah, bad ending. The original initial comment is to yourself is what does he or she know? I've been working on this like for, you know, years. Um, but at the end of the day, the great endings come when you do listen to the agent or the editor. And, and you know, after working it out, but it does take a day or two or a week or a month um, to cool off and then be able to think about it clearly. Um, I want to go back. So before I go back, I, I, I knew that we would not finish today. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I don't even know how long this is supposed to go on for. So, how how much longer do you have? No, no, I know it, it's fine. It's fine. I just maybe I don't want people to get bored. It's like a super. super anyway, uh, no, no, nobody's getting bored, and we okay. don't care. We're having fun. Um, okay. So, I, I want to challenge you now. Um, yeah. That now I understand why you are in Europe. Um, why? And, why is that? Okay, I, I'm going to say something that uh, some people in the states are not going to like, and okay. a few people in Canada. Um, my my feeling is, or this is really Oive Debbie. I'm going to get okay. in trouble for this. Uh -oh, um, for like for me, uh, picture books are holy. They are sacrament. They influence the whole lives of four and five year olds. Um, sometimes, like you say, a kindergarten kid will have a read on a book and um, and cherish this for 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 life. And 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 you talk about vision. And sometimes in America, I'm going to get into big trouble. Uh, mm -hmm. They talk about they talk about money, and that you should write for the market. And I say, oh, I was a scientist for thirty years. I was writing for the market. I was writing for this. No, a children's book should be written for the heart. And and you just told me that you judge books by whether you get a tingling feeling. <laughs> and you didn't say anything about being able to sell the book, the marketability, um, the commercial hooks. And I, I, I know that this is in your mind, but I'm hoping that it's secondary. No, of course, of course, those things are in my mind. Of course they are. But they all are secondary. They really are. Because even there have been times, no, absolutely. And, and I wish I could say um, that the money comes with it. And of course, of course, I'm happy to say that the agency has grown over the years and, and our artists have grown and some people. I think this is a real... Um, a success story is when an artist can live off their art and not all artists can and not all uh, not all children's book authors can and we have several who now do and I think that's that's a real um, measure of success for for me and it's not for everyone because not all uh, children's book authors have you know I, I feel like if a person says, this is what I want to do, and I hope someday I can live off my art, and they do, that for me is incredible. Um, that doesn't mean people are like, um, 
you know, crazy, crazy uh, rich, or we, we have some some books that have done phenomenally well and have sold in in in, in many many countries. Um, just to, can you to, can you give an example, please? Yes. So I didn't do my homework because by Davide Kali and Benjamin Shaw, um, I think we're now at 25, 25 uh, translations. This is thanks to Chronicle Books. Chronicle Books uh, has world rights and their uh, team sold those rights. Uh, it turned into a book series. So that's um, a really big, big, uh, those are kind of big. Uh, who, who, who was the editor that acquired it? Uh, Naomi Kirsten, Naomi Kirsten of Chronicle Books. Um, we have, of course, Chris Alt, Chris Houghton's books have, have done phenomenally well from, from the get-go, I have to say. He's been very constant over the years. And he's, you know, again, I think it's also interesting to see authors like Davide Kali, Benjamin Shaw, Chris Houghton, who consistently put out books every year. Davide Kali puts out quite a few. But, you know, Chris Houghton, his picture books are 32 pages. It might look like it take it might take six months. His books take around one year to, to produce, uh, to make then publish. So he's now coming out with a book, one book every two years. And those books, you know, if you do the numbers, you might think one book every two years, he has to sell a lot of books to be able to live off that. Well, in his case, what's important is are not only the books that come out in English by his publisher, Walker Books, but Walker Books has done a phenomenal job on, um, on the co-editions. And so again, his books are published in, in uh, various languages. And, and that's really important. And that's something that maybe in the United States, maybe, uh, well, I think today, not as much, but I think that's something that authors need to know that the, the foreign um, the foreign editions are, are a source of rep and very important source of revenue for your book. Sometimes books do better in other countries than in your own country, which is incredible, right? That's absolutely incredible. Or to think that's, you know, so. Um, Here in Israel, a Frankie Sean the, did better in uh, Germany and Austria than, uh, you know, and, and I, I want to have Chris on the show. And, I, and actually, I found you via Chris. So um, I don't want to talk too much about Chris, except. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, saying, Chris, is, Chris is wonderful. And he has so much to say and so much insight. I've learned, I, I, I've, I've, I learned a lot from working with him. I've, we've, we we did like an interview together a few years ago. So, and I so learned please, please please tell him that Mel is on his track. I will. Um, um, so um, and how much fun I hope you had today. So maybe he will come around and uh, no, absolutely. And yeah, so, he should. Yeah. So so but when I'm in a bookstore in in uh, London, okay, or Bristol, the um, the books are different. It's it's not your typical American. A um, right. yeah, fair, and it, ostensibly it's the same language. But my question to you is: Is it really? Is it really different? Are books really different? Is that what you're asking? The the, the, the picture books in 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 Britain yes. in the oh, yeah. are kidding. not the same picture books. No, no, no. They're not. The, they're not the same. They're not the same at all. And I think that's a great exercise to go into a bookstore in in uh, New York or in in London and one in Paris and just just to see that it's it's quite immediate. It, um, they're, they're very different and the aesthetics are different. What I think is interesting, I think in the, in the past several years in the United States is I think the, the American market has opened up to the European market and to the Asian market. And that's exciting, I think. When I first started, so um, uh, my agency 12 years ago and was pitching projects, this is, the, this is what people would say constantly. And it was a nice way of saying no, it was um, there's a real European feel 
to your a real European aesthetic is a real European feel, and that meant sophisticated, too sophisticated, and or not American enough. And I got that over and over. And finally, I was like, oh, subtext, no, you know, it's not commercial. That was the subtext. I feel like now with um, the, the number of the number of interesting independent publishers there are quite a few i think enchanted lion really kind of has has made its tracks um claudia at enchanted lion but as well as a lot of other independent publishers have helped um pave the way for the more commercial publishers to say hey wait a minute there is a market there it, it doesn't have to have a certain kind of uh, I don't, I'll just say Disneyan for, for lack of a better term, but that more commercial look. I mean, of course, those books might sell more, but then we have authors and illustrators like, like um, um, John Klassen, who I would consider has a more European uh, look, a more minimal, uh, uh, ironic, uh, maybe uh, subtle subtlety that some American books don't have. So to answer your question, yes, absolutely books are different. But I think that's now a plus. I'm beginning to see it now. Initially, I would, I was kind of crestfallen. You know, I would go to the book fairs and would come home crestfallen because of this response. Now I feel like there are, and not only independent book uh, publishers, but there are, there's a book book publisher we work with who we love, Tundra Books, the part of the Penguin Random House. Canadian, yes, Canadian, Canadian. But I think also uh, since they're Canadian, but. Um, I we work a lot with them and they they are very much open to kind of quirkier funkier um there's also terms that are often used uh, Debbie I'm going to get into trouble again the Canadians yes. are more European I think they're I think they're closer I think there's something about the Canadian um Canadian culture not that I know well I've been there once I went to Toronto once but I feel like the that the culture is halfway between between <laughs> they have their own culture, but United States and and uh, Europe. There's something and, a bit and, and, and it is. Um, yeah, you're, you're making me miss Canada actually. Um, so <laughs> listen, I, I want to have you on again, but uh, we're starting to run out of time, and I yeah. want to grab grab you afterwards for a couple of minutes. Absolutely. Um, so what uh, what is the agency looking for these days? Most of the <laughs> audience is probably going to be. Uh, from North America here, uh, okay. which you never know, you never know. Right. Uh, what is the agency looking for these days? Um, a good story, <laughs> a good original story with uh, with surprising uh, illustrations could be something that surprises me on an emotional level, could be something that surprises me with its humor. Um, I love humor. Absolutely love humor. I, I, also lyrical text, but I think I'm more interested. I'm more. I, I lean more toward humor, um, and and um, I'm looking for that tingling feeling. Okay. Uh, also, authors, because more and more agents in North America are are closing the doors to author only texts. Um, yeah, I'm also open to to authors. Same thing. Always looking for a good story. Of course, good writing. Um, Something that I'm looking for and something that it's not that easy to find, two things I'm looking for. I, especially interested in author illustrators, somebody like Chris Houghton, who's an author illustrator. And not all illustrators are also authors, but we have several who have kind of morphed and they try it out. And then one book after another, they've kind of learned um, because that's also interesting. But in terms of authors, um, if you're an author, out if you're out there, if you're an author, I think what's important is to know to understand that the 
children's books texts, there's not only the text, there's also illustration and to leave room and to learn that, to leave room for illustration. And I think sometimes um, maybe debut writers are in, you know, writers at the kind of the first stages don't know that. And I think that's problematic because they have to, uh, and you do that just by reading picture books, but you have to learn that you have to leave space. It can't all be resolved in the text. I'm with you. Um, I, I think if my transition came when I started, you know, a, a author only, they have um, what I call illustrator envy. And I suffered from that for years. But actually, the more you open up to the illustrations, the better your your book is going to be. And, the, more, uh, the levels, I mean, just the levels that going back to that one book that I told you I didn't do my homework because that series, Benjamin Shaw brought that the text was brilliant in and of itself, but he brought it to another level because he added things that weren't in the text. I think that's what that's what uh, publishers, editors, agents, that's what we're looking for. Okay, that's wonderful. And um, just to make it clear, mm -hmm. uh, how many um, how many submissions do you get of art and texts a year? A year? Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I can tell you how many we get like in a month. Uh, we can we can I, multiply we that. Get, you know, we get like thirty or forty uh, in a month. That's all. Yeah, thirty. Yeah. 30 yeah. or 40 submissions? Submissions, probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to get a lot more after this. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe more, maybe more, I'm trying to think. And what I, I feel bad, maybe get more, but no, I would say around about more. Let, let, let's summarize. You're looking in particular for um, author illustrators, mm -hmm. or picture books, mm -hmm. or illustrators, or authors who have illustrators in their hearts. Yes. That's a great summing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good summing up. So we still have lots to talk about, but um, we've kind of run out of time. Okay. So, well, uh, anyway, it, was, it was wonderful talking to you. And so uh, Debbie Bebo from Debbie Bebo Agency in Milano. If I knew you existed, <laughs> I, Milano is three hours from Tel Aviv. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to New York. I could have saved a lot of money. <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, all, all the wonderful author and illustrators, Israelis, uh, Debbie is interested also in uh, illustrators and authors from all over the world. Um, this is your opportunity. And um, I've looked at your website and the, and the material is incredible. Thank so, you. Um, I was going to say one thing, if I could also um, sure. tell your audience. For people looking for agents, um, I think it's really important to look around and look at a big number of agents, look at lots of agents and see if there's something in that agency that speaks to you, because I think it's it's a relationship and it ha there has to be, it can't, I, I received um, a submission today, or well, anyway, I often receive submissions from people that their artwork or there has nothing to do with our agency. So it's important that you find it has the right one for you. And it's kind of like, you can call it shopping or whatever it is, but I think because it's such, also an intense relationship, there has to be that um, that affinity. There has to be an affinity. Uh, yeah, but there, there's, there's another angle. I would also, mm -hmm. I, I would add to that, that um, wonderful websites like yours can teach the author slash illustrator um, a lot about what success means, what success looks like, what success sounds like, and, um, and, and, and give the... Um, Give the artist ideas 
Um, right, right. So I think it's great to stu to study, and in the same way as like what, what agents do, and I think what you do too when you interview people. When I, when I'm going to meet with a new editor, I try to find out as much as possible about that editor and about the publishing house, about what they've done recently, what they're doing, because that gives me more information, so I could then kind of tailor uh, my pitch to them and and kind of say which books I want to show them and which I'm not going to show them. Right. So yes. Exactly. So uh, Debbie Bebo, it's been wonderful. And I'm going to mention that my name is Mel Rosenberg and I'm the host of the, what am I the host of? The Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. And this has been remarkable. It was, I dreamed of having a wonderful conversation with you and this has really been much better. Thank you. It's, so, been, it's been really fun. We're going to throw everybody out and we're going to okay. go come back and have just a short tete-a-tete. -tete. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much.